Thank you, dear God. Yes, let's give the Lord a praise. Let's put our hands together. He is a great and a mighty God, and we love you, Lord. You are mighty. You are powerful. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha, the Omega. Lord, you are the Rose of Sharon. You are the rock on which we stand. You are holy, holy, holy. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, team, for your excellence and your anointing. You've really helped us today. Is that me? That's great. So it is a very warm day. And so depending on where you are in the building, you can actually be quite refreshed or you could be in a place where you're not getting the air. So if you would like to move, the best place is towards the, toward the door or just over here in this section here because all the wind's coming through there. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to get up and move around, find a cool place if you like, say hello to somebody. And uh, maybe if Raymond could just go through the back, that would be great at the same time. So let's move. Raymond knows where the anointing is. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we are continuing our series today on the shack. And whilst we're not uh, particularly looking too much at the book, the book does provide us a real opportunity to look at some big questions. And so let me uh, give you a summary of all comparative world beliefs in 119 words. Here we go. We can either know something about God or not. Agnosticism says not. We can either know that God exists or not. Atheism says not. This God is either one or not. Uh, polytheism says not. This God can be known with words or not. Buddhism says not. This God can either be known as either separate from creation or not. Hinduism says not. This God has revealed himself or not. Deism says not. This God has revealed himself in Jesus or not. Judaism says not. This God died for our sins or not. Islam says not. This God is worshipped as one God in three persons. And the cults say not. Several aspects of the God's appearance in the shack can in inevitably shock, confuse, and perhaps even dismay some readers, especially those steeped in a traditional Christian doctrine and the official teachings of the conservative Catholic and Protestant churches. However, let's face some brutal facts. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's face some brutal facts. The Pentecostal church is not big on doctrine. It emphasizes feelings and emotions. It's a brutal fact. Hey, I love it. I want to laugh. I want to cry. I want to dance. I want to express the inner life I have towards my God on a Sunday. I love it. However, for many Pentecostals, they have been led to believe that God is the same as a good feeling. They went to church, had good feelings. And they thought that was God. The only trouble is that is when life's not going so well and the feelings aren't any good anymore, 
they do fall away. And we know many have gone down that road. So while we might understand the broad outlines of what we believe, but most Pentecostals struggle to even answer the friendly Jehovah's Witness who knocks at your door and tells you that the doctrine of the Trinity is a pagan heresy. Jews and Muslims actually think that Christians worship one, two, three separate gods. And uh, one God called the Father, another God called Jesus, another God called the Holy Spirit. This is what's known as tritheism, belief in three gods. That's not what Christians believe. Okay? My wife, Monique, she grew up in a Pentecostal cult called The Message. They also denied the Trinity. Their church, that Jesus is the Father, that Jesus is the Son, and that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. They believe that sometimes God appeared as the Father, you know, popped out, hello, I'm the Father, went back and be God again and popped out and then he became Jesus and popped in. That's another form of error that we would call modalism. And let's be honest, we probably don't have a good grasp on it ourselves. You only have to listen to the way that we pray sometimes. Dear Father Jesus, Holy Spirit, someone up there please listen to me. Let's be honest, it is a mystery. Meekness and magic, it is a mystery and our limited minds, some are more limited than others, particularly mine, will struggle to understand an unlimited God. Even the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, this is Paul saying, without question, this is a great mystery. That's what the Bible says. This is Paul who was caught up in the third heaven and has all sorts of revelation. He says, without question, this is a great mystery. That God was revealed in a human body, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, announced to the nations. He was believed on throughout the world and taken up into heaven in glory. This is a great mystery. Possibly one of the most controversial aspects of the book, The Shack, is that its representation of God as an Afro-American woman, Jesus as a Palestinian carpenter with a tool belt, and a little wispy, wind-Asian female as the Holy Spirit called Sarah Yu. Who is this Christian God to whom we have gathered here today? Who is this Christian God that we call Father, Son, Holy Spirit? To whom have we gathered here today? This is, I think, an engaging and important question. And I'm sure many readers may find the Shack's portrayal of God as startling. And it will cause some conservative people to reject the book as heresy. But actually, I don't agree. After careful reflection and much study, I've decided it's essentially a biblical, orthodox, even quite helpful picture not description, but picture of what cannot be actually pictured. However, I do want to also warn against some possible misrepresentations and few flaws. The Shack is not a book of systematic theology or orthodox doctrine. It's a story. Turn to your neighbor and say it's a story. And like Jesus' parables, it's meant to convey some insight about God without being totally comprehensive. In his parables, Jesus describes God as a woman looking for a lost coin. 
as an absentee landlord who sends his son to check on tenants, as a shepherd looking for a lost land. Throughout the Bible, God reveals himself as a cloud, as a pillar of fire, as a soldier dressed for battle, as a burning bush and as the angel of the Lord. Are any of these pictures of God heretical? Well, only if we take them far too literally. So let's not be overly sensitive about Young's picture of God. And I do want to be clear. He does want to push over our cliche understanding of the God that we might have grown up with and prompt us to the opportunity of getting to know the true God of the Bible. See, empty churches is actually a symptom of an empty understanding. Boring worship is a symptom of empty hearts. If we're to be honest, we have lost the reality of the true God in our church. We've lost the involvement of God, the true God, in our lives. And we may have lost the vision of the true God, the God of the Bible. So I am sympathetic to deconstruct our little Jesus, to deconstruct our little God, to deconstruct our false images of God and to promote the radical relational opportunity that we have, every one of us here today, to deeply know the true God of Christians. John 17 verse 3 puts it this way. Jesus praying to the Father says, and this is the way to have eternal life. Is anybody here interested in having eternal life? Would you like to know the way to have eternal life? This is what Jesus said, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's eternal life. Just not signing a decision card, sticking your hand up. It's the knowledge of God in a relational, everyday, intimate sense. Yes, the shack is not a useful doctrinal primer, but it can challenge our cultural assumptions about who God is. It may even stimulate you to refresh your own pursuit of Him. Some of us have been God chasers, only if you're caught up with the false image and not the living reality. Only to have found out, like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, that we've looked behind the curtain and the smoke and the lights to discover the Wizard of Oz was not as grand as we thought he was, but was a little old man. However, it is important to recognize that the Bible unambiguously depicts this God that we worship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This Bible describes God as the one what and the three who's. One God and three persons. I do understand the author's intent in picturing Papa, God, as a big, round, joyful, cuddly, Afro-American woman. Because, you see, Matt's experience with his own earthly father had been very negative. I can understand why like Mac, many people find it difficult to actually engage with the idea of God as your father. One young man that I counselled for a number of years and successfully he was engaged with the whole idea of going through a sex change, going from a boy to a girl. So it was interesting that when we talked about his father, he had only ever described his father with the term the sperm donor. Such was the breaking down of that linkage. 
And you see, the devil has gone all out on attack on the idea of a good father. The whole idea of a good father is now anti-cultural. And the crisis in our world today, the crisis in our churches, the crisis in our families, the crisis in our businesses and our sports is a crisis of fathers. We have allowed the devil to pull down the role of the father to something which is now absent and disengaged. That's a sad thing. They've done studies on what the Westerner actually thinks about God. And when you strip back the language, we either come down that we think God's like a nice grandpa, you know, a nice friendly man. He's up there. He's never going to be cross with you. You mess up. He's always going to give you a hug and a love. You know, that's one image of God. Another image of God is that he's the waiter. You know, you just need something, God. You know, I want my job. I want this. I want that. Another one is the angry judge. You know, he doesn't really like me. And of course, the other image is that of the abusive father. These are native images, and it's been a deliberate ploy, strategy of the devil to attack fatherhood. Men. Men. Your greatest ministry will be a father. The greatest thing that God will ever ask you to do is first be a father, to be a good father. Because God has wired it this way that our children will begin to form their idea of who God is by a relationship with a father. And so we need to own up that, that that's something really important. Jesus consistently taught that God was his father and our father. John 20, verse 17. When people wanted to know what God was like, Jesus said, I want you to imagine a good father. And your God, the father, is infinitely better than a good father. Jesus was quite comfortable with saying, do you want to know what God's like? He's a good dad. Jesus tells his here is to think of an infinitely better natural father, Matthew 7, verse 1. So God is a father. He is the father of Jesus, and God is our father. Not only that, God is your father, but he's not your father. You get the distinction? God is your father, but he's not your father. My body, as brilliant as it is, as heavy as it is these days, is given to me by my mother and my father and they exchanged their DNA and I got this. But if I was to die right now, one second after I've died, my body is exactly the same as what it was the second after. Nothing's changed. The blood's still there. The brain's still there. Every cell's still there. My bones are still there. However, something's gone from me. My spirit, my soul is no longer there. Okay? Now, they've done studies now. They've shown with neurobrain science that people's consciousness continues after the brain stem has died and it's dead. People have had near-death experiences. There's a whole bunch of research that shows you now that what's you isn't your body. Some of you might be very happy about that. There's something in you that's invisible it's called the person, the soul, the spirit that will live forever and ever and ever and you get to choose where you go and spend that. So it's important because 
You are actually God's child. Whether you know it or not, you are a child of God. Now, you may be distant from God, and you may be a long way from God, and you may need to come home like the prodigal son. But what's in you came from God. Your immaterial, your invisible part, your soul came from him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 says, He's the father of just spirits made perfect. He is your father. So we need to wrestle with the experiential challenge of correcting our vandalized understanding of fatherhood. We need to scrub back the graffiti that the devil has written on the idea of father. If you are a father, you have greatness thrust upon your life. You actually get to mirror God in the lives of the people around you. Jesus taught us how to pray, didn't he? Our Father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's an amazing, in an amazing moment of the intimacy of his disciples, he declares, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The issue is not gender, but originator. The message is not patriarchal, but relational. The symbol's not power, but love. It's not sex, it's creation. It's not domineering, but authoring. I want to pray for fathers right now in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you for every father in this house and every father it's going to be. Lord, every person who functions as a father, Lord, even though maybe their kids are not, adopted, whatever, Father, I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that, Lord, they will get a prophetic revelation to know that their touch, their words, their leadership, their direction has eternal consequences. Lord, let them not see it as an interruption to their lives, but the greatest thing you've called them to be is a father in the name of Jesus Christ. I speak it into being. I want to pray also for those that may struggle with saying, Daddy, God. Papa, God. Abba, Father. For some of us, there is no sense of intimacy, but it's a barrier. An absolute barrier. And I can understand. I, I, I didn't have the best father in many ways. I understand. But he loves you. You were made for love and you have a father in heaven who loves you. And the power of the Holy Spirit wants to actually quicken the inside of you today so that your soul will cry out naturally, Papa, Abba, Daddy as a safe and a loving thing to do. Father, I pray for those here today who may struggle with an intimacy of you being their father. Lord, set them free, set them free, set them free in Jesus' name. The image of Jesus in the book is he's that a carpenter. The New Testament actually also corrects people's ideas about Jesus. Even back then, believers were misguided to understanding Jesus. They had false concepts. The real Jesus was fully human and fully God. And I am supportive of Young's attempts to bring clarification to the human side of Jesus. However, I do feel that he's left us with a very unglorified identikit of Jesus. Because now Jesus is no longer a carpenter. Today he is the blazing, blinding, baffling one seen by John on the Isle of Patmos. He is 
when you've got your cousin falling down dead at your feet and worshipping you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you are pretty spectacular. God's sufficient answer to the suffering church was unveiling who Jesus is today. He's no longer beaten and hung upon a cross. Today is the Lord of life risen in power and authority. You know, we understand it's great to have Jesus as your mate. You know, old um, Crocodile Dundee, me and Jesus, we're mates. Um, He's not your mate. He's your God. See, the devil's done a lot to make Jesus the little friendly hippie plastic Jesus. But this Jesus can't heal you. This Jesus won't keep you away from the habits that will destroy your life. This Jesus can't help you. This Jesus can't save you. The devil wants you to think of Jesus as meek and mild, that that was his first visit. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back mighty and mad. He's coming back mighty and mad. Oh, that's not what we like to hear, but that's the one coming back with a sword in his hand on a white horse to come in to conquer the kingdoms of the earth and to bring heaven to earth. Mighty and mad, strong for battle, a great God, one who will grip our attention. The image of the Spirit in this particular book is of uh, Sarah Yu, uh, a little wispy Asian woman. It's probably more accurate than what we might think. She's a servant-type personality. She drifts in and out of the scene. She's always present, even when Mac's not aware of her presence. She tends to speak up and act for God when required. Nevertheless, the Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Greek pronoun is specific. There is no doubt about that. And the Holy Spirit is certainly referred to as a helper by Jesus. However, he's more than a helper. He is the Lord of the church, Acts 15, 28. He can be blasphemed, resulting in judgment with death. He guides, he grieves. He's much more than a governor and he's the active agency of an all-powerful God. You see, one of the unfortunate images of the Holy Spirit is a dove. I don't really want to upset everybody here today, but I'm going to. It's one of our cultural assumptions. Look, it's a good symbol. But when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus, it's often pictured there's a dove coming upon Jesus. Did you see that picture? But what the Bible actually says, sorry to confuse you, but the Bible actually says that the Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove. That's different. Didn't come down him as a dove. A dove didn't come down and sit on Jesus' head and go, hoo, hoo, hoo. That's the way it's pictured that the Holy Spirit alighted upon him and the description makes perfect sense. But it's a description because no one's frightened of that. When's the last time you ran from a pigeon? <laughs> When's the last time? However, he is the holy Spirit. Now, the way we behave sometimes in the worship service means that we probably think he's a dove, not the Holy Spirit. So we have an opportunity to make those little adjustments, click, 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 click. Who is this God that we worship? He's bigger, more powerful. We should come to church putting away our iPhones and bringing our 
baseball bats and our shin guards and our elbow pads and our crash helmets. If we're coming to someone who's strong and powerful and awesome, someone who can turn your life upside down, the God of the Bible can absolutely heal the sick, save the lost, transform you, reveal you, who the sun sets free is free indeed. Hey, that the saying won't help you, the church won't help you, the buzz won't help you, the atmosphere won't help you, but if the sun has set you free, you will be free indeed in the name of Jesus. So, you know, we need to help God adjust our understanding. One of the things that the shack does really well, I think, is that it presents God as a loving community, as a circle of love rather than a hierarchy. Now, this is a paradigm would totally revolutionize the way that we do relationships, where we would value unity and love rather than power and position. I think what I'm saying to you is really heavy. Turn to your name and say, this is a heavy revy. I'm open to receive. The church and marriage and parenting have been institutions that may have been negatively affected by a hierarchical view of the Trinity because it's based on power and who's the boss rather than what I think the Bible actually teaches which is, is a circle of love. We know what you're talking about. Mac was a little bit frustrated. This is a quote from the book. I want him to know who's in charge, Mac says. I want to understand who's the chain of command. Papa says, chain of command? That sounds ghastly. Jesus says it's at least binding. And Papa added that as they both started laughing. And Papa turned to Mac and said, Though chains be of gold, they're chains all the same. I think there's great potential in a positive remodeling of church life, of community and marriage by an understanding that the Christian God, not the God of Islam, not the God of Hinduism, but the Christian God is not so much a hierarchy, but a community of mutual interpenetration of centers of selflessness. And that's so deep, it probably went whoosh. Let me try and say it again. Instead of it being a hierarchy, it's a group of three that are invested in loving someone else in the three. That they're constantly deferring to one another. Constantly saying, I love you. How can I serve you? How can I move forward? Now, we don't have time to unwrap all that, but I think there's uh, some, some uh, power revelation to be had in understanding that the Greek view of the Trinity, see the church split in the 11th century, we've got the Western church, and then the, you've got the Greek view of the church. The Greeks tend to start with the fact that God are three persons and then they try and work out how he one. Whereas the Western church, the tradition that we flow in, comes out of Augustine who started off with God as the one and then tried to work out the three. So we've tended to think of God as one, 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 one and then we try and figure out how the three work. Where the Eastern church says, no, three, but they're one. 
and they call it the perichoresis, which is the dance of God. They've used this idea that to understanding the Trinity is these three personalities in a constant embrace of love and of support and of admonition and encouragement, just constantly circling in this idea of embracing ooh, of love. Sorry. <laughs> stop, stop. I don't note to self. Note to self. Don't do that again. <laughs> Note to self. I was doing right to us. <laughs> the Bible only speaks directly about the essence of God. I'm almost finished on two occasions. Once God is described as spirit, John 4.24, God is spirit. And twice in the same chapter, God is said to be love. So if you want to know what God is, he is love, spirit, love. That is a great biblical idea of what our God is. He's spirit, so you can't touch him, you can't feel him. He's a bit like you. You just currently have the benefit of having a body. He no longer has a body. He is spirit, and he's essentially love. The God of the Bible is unfathomably good and a loving spirit. In conclusion, the second commandment, First commandment is that know that the Lord thy God is one God. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment was a permanent prohibition against creating a false image of the one on the mountain surrounded by smoke, thunder, and lightning. You see, there is a real risk of idolatry. Any human conception of God, whether physical or metaphysical, must necessarily be a false image. The finite cannot conceive the infinite. Augustine made the observation, I'm sorry to do this to you today on a really hot day. There's a little bit of Latin for you. Si comprendendes non est dus. The God you think is God is not God. He's bigger. He's a bigger God. The only biblical image permitted is that of Jesus. The only image that we're allowed to have is the glorified Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains things by his very powerful word. Look, it could be argued that Young's presentation of the Trinity is a false image. However, the God image held by many Christians today in this world is equally false. Each Sunday... There are those who offer worship to whom they do not know. Christians are possibly just as guilty as the children of Israel when they danced around their own creation and just called it God. I'm hoping today that we might be able to leave at the door our small Father God, our small Jesus God, and our small Holy Spirit. Allow God to reignite, to refresh the screen of our mind and understanding through revelation that the God of the Bible is so much more bigger, so much more grand than what we have so far discovered. As Paul says himself, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness.
We are never going to understand this mystery in the sense of dominating or exhausting it. We have eternity to do that. Because a mystery in this sort of a sense is not a puzzle or problem to be solved, but it's a literal communication and learning about this God that we love and adore. Um, I often, uh, in marriage counselling, relationship counselling, and I'll have two couples sitting there, and they could have been married for long periods of time, been together for a long period of time, maybe 20, 30 years. And if the relationship's not going well, I'll often ask the wife the question, says, Do you, no, I, want to ask you, I want you to be honest now, does your husband really know you? And most times I say, no. And I'll turn to the husband and say, I want you to be honest now, does your wife really know you? He says, no. It seems almost impossible, doesn't it? After so many years, they still can acknowledge, I don't understand, I don't yet know. This God that we worship, it's more than a song that we sing. You can have correct theology in your heart, but a cold heart. You have correct theology in your head, you can have useless hands. We have this incredible opportunity to know this one true God. And he invites us into this relationship of love. See, the Christian God isn't God alone. God alone, as say the Muslim God, is stoic and alone and can never genuinely communicate anything except for power, except for will. But the Christian God is essentially a loving community. Forever and ever, out of their very nature, they are love. And you and I are invited into this circle of love. What a privilege. What an amazing thing. May I continue to discover the depth of that. I'm going to have the band up right now. We're going to close. And uh, with... Um, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, we have this amazing presentation. The prophet Isaiah had a favorite king. Uh, it was, his name was Uzziah, Isaiah. They still grew up together, they were mates. He was a good king, relatively, one of the better kings of uh, Judah. And Isaiah is very concerned about where the nation's going. The northern kingdom's been taken off and conquered by the Assyrians. And there seems to be real trouble going to come upon the nation of Judah. And this good king dies. And he goes to the temple looking for answers. And the Bible says that while he was in the Lord's temple, he had a vision of the Lord. And he cries, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. That is the truth. I humbly present that to you today. I have sweated. I've built a shack. I've spun around. And I've done that. That you may actually say, God, help me to see this God who I love and I serve in all his glory. Help me to see a fresh revelation of the one who saved me. Help me to embrace this circle of love. Help me to join the dance 
help me to say Abba. And to feel the intimacy of his spiritual breath upon my life. Help me, Lord, to know what it is to be joined to this Christian God that we worship. It's my prayer for you this morning. There is no bigger idea. I could give you 10 steps to success, 20 ways to get healthy, wealthy and wise. But if I could introduce you afresh to this God, the God of the Bible, then your life will never be the same again. When we sing holy, 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 do we have any idea what we sing? What do we sing? What does it mean? For some of us, we're disengaged, we're bored, we want to go home, we're thinking about a computer, thinking about lunch. When we actually have this moment to talk to God, to be wrapped up, to be cuddled, caressed, carried by the Creator Himself. So we're going to close. Thank you for being patient. I really appreciate it. I know it's uncomfortable. The weather's worked against us. We're going to close. I would like to sing Make This a Majesty. This is about the best doctrinal song that you'll sing this year. (laughs) This is great teaching in this song. Some of the stuff we sing is more light and happy. Can we stand and sing this song? And then I'll hand over to Ravi. And we'll just talk to you for a few short minutes.